De Beers back suplex, and he goes up top for a falling held but falling held butt. How is that not a move name? <laughs> that should have been Kane's move. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Anyway. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not so good old days of World Championship Wrestling series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and here, completing a twin Colossus pose with me, is Alec Pridgen. I'm doing good, just don't move too much. I'm really unsteady right now. Yeah, yeah, could be a little bit awkward. A bit. Now, in a match, that pose stops the ref from counting, as we established. In John's wonderful notes. Uh, so what, what does that happen for us hosting a podcast? What's, what's that mean there? I, I would assume the recording would stop because our hosting would drop. Oh, that'd be bad. We'd probably better stop that then. Yeah, just in case. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? Going good. It's going good. Approaching the end of the year already. It, it feels so bizarre to say that. It really does, yeah. I was, I was listening recently back to our, um, our Starcade wrap-up. Mm-hmm. And realizing that that was back in what was it March or April? Uh, yeah, it sounds about around right. the beginning of all this, all the lockdowns and everything. So, well, let's see, we had the recap and then four episodes. So yeah, it's probably about right. Yeah, and realizing that was the last time I actually saw you guys in person, I think. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's been a while, but I'm glad we've managed to keep meeting up. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, make it work. All right. Well, tonight we're going to actually step away from WCW for a bit to cover the pilot episode of the AWA Team Challenge series. Now, the American Wrestling Association, or AWA, is not our focus, but it's an important part of wrestling history, and it once could have been considered one of the big three promotions, Mm -hmm. alongside the WWF and the NWA or Jim Crockett promotions. It traces its roots to the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club, which had hosted wrestling since 1933 under owner Anton Stetcher, a founding member of the NWA. By 1959, control of the club had passed to amateur wrestling champion Vern Gagne, who had been on the U.S. team at the 1948 Olympics, and Wally Carbo, Stetcher's fellow promoter and a pro wrestling referee. In 1960, still part of the NWA, the two tried to get the NWA to agree to a match between Gagne and then Champ, and this is a familiar name, Al, mm-hmm. Pat O'Connor. Oh, hey there. <laughs> when the NWA refused, Gagne and Carbo took their promotion and several allied ones out of the NWA, forming the AWA. Interestingly, to give the whole thing more of an air of legitimacy, they declared Pat O'Connor the first AWA champion. When he kind of predictably never defended his new belt, they stripped him of it and awarded it to Ganya. So, not to get a bit much in history right now, but... So what you're saying is the ADB was founded because they wouldn't let someone win a title, and ultimately the ADB would fall apart because they wouldn't let someone win a title. (laughs) In part, as I'll get to. Oh, yeah, obviously. Not the only thing, but it is a big factor. It is, yes. The AWA was quite a successful promotion in the early years, and it had a wide reach, 
from the Midwest all the way to California. As you might guess, the promotion was centered on Ganya for much of its existence. He has 10 reigns with the AWA World Heavyweight Championship for a total of 4,677 days. Just for comparison, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship record for days is Luthez, with 3,749 across three reigns, and for reigns the record is Ric Flair with 10, but only 3,116 days. So, (laughs) Ganya gets into the 4,000 area, nearly 1,000 more than Luthez. That's pretty crazy. Eventually, in 1981, Ganya retired as a performer, though he continued to serve as promoter. And the new focus of the promotion was Nick Bockwinkle, who himself ended up with four reigns for a total of 2,990 days. Still pretty impressive. Still pretty impressive, yeah. But the 1980s were where the trouble started. Hulk Hogan arrived in the AWA in 1981 and swiftly became a superstar. The AWA had a phenomenon on their hands, and Ganya was happy with Hogan's ability to pull in an audience. The fans really, really wanted Hogan to win the title. Yes. Ganya did not. No. Hogan was a proven draw, but his wrestling style, power moves, and showboating didn't match up to the technical style that Ganya thought should be the focus of the championship. So, he decided to use Hogan as a draw, but he didn't intend to give him the title. And it worked. For a while. <laughs> but after two false title wins, where Hogan appeared to win the belt, but was stripped of it later, the crowds were enraged. And with some tension between Hogan and Ganya, based around Ganya trying to get Hogan to sign a merchandise revenue deal balanced in Ganya's favor, mm-hmm. Vince McMahon swept in to offer Hogan his promotion's title, the WWF World Heavyweight Championship. Now, it's important to note that this is the beginning of the story of the AWA's decline, not the end. True. Hogan's jump did a lot of damage, and several other stars followed in his wake, including familiar names like Mean Gene Okerlund, Jesse Ventura, and Bobby Heenan. Mm -hmm. But the main impact was probably less in terms of outright damage to the AWA, and more in allowing the WWF the means that it needed to expand to a national promotion, which let it draw stars from many promotions, including, as we noted back in our first few Starcade episodes, the NWA. Yes. But the AWA would continue for several years, and even form a temporary alliance with the NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions, as Pro Wrestling USA, during which they first promoted their own supercard, Super Clash. Yes. <laughs> it was during this period that two of our favorites, the Road Warriors, rose to prominence. By 1986, though, things had turned bad. The alliance with the NWA had collapsed, with Ganya accusing the Crockets of trying to poach talent and the AWA could not keep up with the WWF. Despite that, however, the AWA was still home to some promising new stars. Scott Hall, Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, Vader, Kurt Hennig, Diamond Dallas Page, Yokozuna, and Eric Bischoff all had AWA runs early in their careers, among others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the late 80s, the decline was clear and Ganya had managed to burn some bridges with partnered promotions at the disastrous Super Clash 3, 
after reportedly refusing to pay wrestlers who had come in from other promotions due to the show's lack of success. When 1989 rolled around, the AWA was desperate. They needed a way to turn things around, some way to attract fans back to their product, a way to match the WWF's slick, larger-than-life style that had become dominant in professional wrestling. They needed an angle that would draw interest and provide a focus for the company. Enter the AWA Team Challenge Series. The Team Challenge Series, beginning October 1st, 1989, was often credited to Eric Bischoff. Bischoff, however, denies this, and notes on his own podcast, 83 Weeks, that he was, quote, nowhere near creative, and, quote, nowhere even in close proximity to the ability to suggest an idea in the AWA. Bischoff at the time was serving as an interviewer for the company, as we'll see on tonight's show, actually. In any case, the idea of the series was to divide the company's roster into three teams, Larry's Legends, captained by Larry Zabisco, Sarge's Snipers, captained by Sergeant Slaughter, and Baron's Blitzers, captained by Baron Von Raschke. However you actually say that. I don't think we ever figured that out. <laughs> yeah, I say Raschke, but I, I have no idea if it's correct or not. I, I think one time you said Baron Von Raschke. <laughs> I, that's not, yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah, <laughs> Al, you told me you found the rosters for the teams. Uh, yes, as much as I could get. There's not like the show is available, but I found it. The sources of people talking about him. So I'll give you the fullest list I can. And bear in mind that I don't know who half these people are. <laughs> I just know the names, and if I'm, if that means something to you, then that's probably better than me. Okay. Okay. So starting with Larry's Legend, obviously you have Zabisco. You have Coquina Maximus, who of course is Yokozuna. Yes. We have the Destruction Crew, who we'll see tonight. We also have the Texas Hangmen, who I would have thought were the two masked cowboy guys, but they aren't. Go figure. Or no, it's one masked cowboy and one non-mask. That's right. Right. I figure if one is wearing a mask, you're both wearing a mask. That's kind of my logic, so. <laughs> it's weird that only one of you would. Uh, we also have Jake Milliman, who's part of the most infamous match they ever had. Though not necessarily his fault. Then Tony DiNucci and Larry Cameron. I could be missing people, but that's what I got. Okay. So then we have Baron's Blitzers. Baron's Blitzers has Candy Divine, tag team known as the Lumberjacks, one of whom is Scott Norton, the other of whom is Berserker, <laughs> right before they jumped ship, as we talked about just recently in the lead up. Someone named the Russian Brute, Tommy Jammer, who we'll see in the first match of the show, Paul Diamond, who we'll see in the, what, third match of the show? Yeah. Fourth. Fourth? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not counting that one thing, but yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. A wrestler named DJ Peterson. Sounds more like a rapper, but apparently he's a wrestler. Okay. The Trooper, who is Del Wilkes, who most people know as the Patriot. Oh, okay. Todd Becker, who I have no idea who that is. And former Olympian Brad Reingens. Another name, hopefully I'm pronouncing correctly. And lastly, we have Sergeant Snipers, which features Colonel De Beers, who we have in the what I call the third match in the show. The Lady Magnificent Mimi, who I assume is not the lady from Drew Carey show. <laughs> we also have Wendy Richter, I believe off of leaving WF after the original screw job. Someone named Johnny Stewart, who is not the Green Lantern. <laughs> A wrestler known as the Unknown Soldier. It's weird to be known as the Unknown, but yeah, there you are. Someone named Tom Stone. And then three names that 
are notable. Two, because they're on the show, and one for a very bad reason. Okay. So first you have Curtis Hughes. All right. I believe before he jumped to WCW and made my, tends to make my worst of lists when we do recaps, <laughs> which will probably be a streak of heels if he appears enough. Nikita Koloff. Oh. I think it's then the time when he was sort of between WCW and coming back. Right, right, yeah. Because he, he's in a bunch of Team Talent Series matches I'm finding near the end. Well, that's cool. And, and, they, and again, the name notable for all the wrong reasons, Buck Zumhoff. <laughs> yeah. So besides being a terrible name, he is currently in jail for um, sexually related crimes involving a minor. So uh, I believe he, he normally gets the erase from the show treatment that someone else we've featured on the show before gets. Okay. He actually, it's, interestingly, he was sent to prison for something else during his original run in the AWA, and they actually stripped him of essentially their light heavyweight title mm-hmm. when he went to prison, which seems logical. But he came back just in time for the end, and then, of course, got sent to jail in 2014 for all the stuff I just mentioned. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to Google Bugs Zemhoff, but I won't go into what he did. All right. These teams would compete in a series of varied matches to earn points. And at the end of the series, which ended up being in August of 1990, the winning team would supposedly receive a check for $1 million. Our show tonight takes place near the beginning of that series. The AWA Team Challenge Series pilot was filmed on October 23, 1989, though I've read in places that that date might be in doubt. Yes. The Team Challenge series itself seems to have begun on October 1st, so it would be a little strange for the pilot to be filmed afterwards, but we do get a scorecard for the series late in the show that shows that several points are already assigned, so maybe it's right. In any case, it seems to be about that date. I will say from reading about people talking about the Team Challenge series, there's some questionable math involved in the scoring. (laughs) A bit like Goldberg's streak where he jumps up four matches over like a day when he didn't have any matches, so... Well, I don't think anyone ever says, like, one match equals one point even, or anything like that. They never actually tell you in this show how many points you earn for winning a match. Yeah, from looking at the scorecard that I've been able to see, from the source where I got the team roster from, they'll do recaps on the actual show, because they actually reviewed it, the person that got this list. Mm -hmm. It'll say, like, this team has, you know, five wins, X number of losses, and, like, DQ... So it does track it to some degree, but I don't know if it's like a one-to-one ratio. Yeah. Over to like TNA's weird thing, the Bound for Glory series, where you get points based on whether you win via pinfall or submission or countout. Yeah, like they did at um, Starcade 89. Right, I'll say that. There is another version of that, yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah, so it might be that. It might be one for one. I'm not sure, but they never actually tell you on the pilot episode, which seems like a bit of an omission. A bit. The show was filmed at a black-curtained TV studio somewhere, in front of precisely zero fans. It earned no TV rating because it was never aired. It was eventually unearthed in the WWE collection and put on the WWE Network, I'm sure equally because it's an interesting part of wrestling history, and because Vince McMahon loves mocking his former rivals. (laughs) I'm not sure if it's ironic that it's in the quote-unquote hidden gems section. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely hidden. That's for sure. It is hidden, yes. Yeah. The gem part is is in dispute. When you get them for our intro. (laughs) Like, yay, 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 let's go to the ring. (laughs) 
I'm Vern Gagne, retired after 35 years of professional wrestling. And now we're entering a new era. The AWA is introducing its Team Challenge Series, an ongoing team competition with standings determined by a point system, a first for professional wrestling. That, along with new television technology, brings you, the wrestling fan, directly into that ring. You know, I'm so excited about it, I may come out of retirement one more time. No, I'm only kidding. I hope you really enjoy it. We get a rather weird show opening, featuring shots of wrestling matches, including an amusing shot of a truly perplexed referee scratching his head, (laughs) interspersed with the American flag, while fast-paced peppy music plays and cheerleaders chant in a completely different rhythm and pace to the music. (laughs) That's true. Which really got on my nerves fast. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, I think they are mostly white cheerleaders, so that does explain the rhythm issue. (laughs) I could say it. (laughs) Once that less-than-promising opening is over... We cut to an idyllic outdoors shot, where Vern Gagne sits next to a toolbox for some reason, with his adorable sleepy dog. Vern, I thought, actually came off as a pretty endearing guy here as he introduced the new era of the AWA. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I get a real Bob Newhart vibe from him. Little bit, little bit, yeah, yeah. We cut to our actual hosts, Ralph Strangis and Vern's also mostly retired son, Greg Gagne. Ralph welcomes us to the AWA's satellite base, and Greg says that for the first time, wrestling fans will get to experience what he felt for 16 years in the ring, seeing wrestling like never before. I was going to say apathy, but yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Greg, no offense. Ralph says we're going to the satellite in our first match. Going to the satellite is not a bad podcast name either, I guess, though it doesn't really scream wrestling podcast. So incidentally, so are they on a satellite? When I think satellite base, I think of Justice League from like the 80s. You, you do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they're like in this TV studio that controls the satellite? I guess so. They're, they're the base that controls the satellite. Oh, okay. Maybe they're where the satellite was launched from. They're, they're in Houston, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes as much sense as anything on this show. It's time for the first match, and let's go to the ring. Our first match is Tommy Jammer versus Tom Burton. And I will note, I do not have the referee's name for most of the matches on this show. We get kind of a nice intro card for Tommy Jammer, showing a shot of his face next to his basic stats and even including his signature. I kind of like the design, though I could do without the green tinge that they gave everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. And then, all goodwill is completely lost. Oh, yeah. In favor of sheer hilarity. As we cut to a shot of poor Tommy Jammer making his entrance, and he's obviously walking in front of a green screen, allowing the AWA to put in really shoddy footage Mm -hmm. of a dull green environment and tiled roof lined on both sides with a video wall of fans supposedly watching the show, which has been sped up and mirrored (laughs) with the same footage on both sides of Jammer. Uh It's made all the more obvious by a dude in a black and yellow checkered shirt who actually falls over halfway through the footage yes, and spends the rest of it picking his chair up and getting situated again. It makes you wonder, like, what other B-roll I have? Like, that's the best one they had. I don't, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. It's someone, like, flipping off the camera, and the other one, like, well, we can't use that one. And for some reason, the AWA decides to use that clip, even though it makes it easy to pick out the same guy on both video walls, and will continue to use that same footage for every single entrance for the entire night. The exact same clip every time. (laughs) 
Well, it's supposed to be the same crowd. I mean, if a different crowd, that would draw your attention to it. That's how fake it was, you know? Do you not have four seconds of the sky <laughs> not falling over? <laughs> I almost wish the intro was actually just Vern Gagne, like in that same shot from the getting just stretched out, and him seeing the dog. That would actually be kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just him petting the dog sitting there. There you go. That'd be great. Like, I'm watching the show. You should, too. In the midst of all this, poor Tommy Jammer has to act like he's playing to the crowd, <laughs> waving and blowing kisses to his non-existent fans. The dude has this frozen smile on his face, just waiting to be told that he's made it far enough and can stop. <laughs> yes. It reminded me of um, Beastmaster 2. <laughs> the credits where he's running he's running towards the camera like from far away. And the credits roll on the side. And I think like three quarters of the way through, he stops running to start starts walking. <laughs> and you're like, uh, I feel like you could cut that off sooner. Or told him we're going to do it again. <laughs> or uh, was it Future Force, where he's driving away in his SUV, <laughs> right, yes. and he has a stop at a stop sign, or a fly, stop, stop light or something? Yeah, yeah. But to be like actually see him put his but... turn signal on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh. Freeze frame, guys. Freeze frame. Exactly. <laughs> Jammer's opponent, Tom Burton, is lucky enough to not have to make an entrance which might be the only time in wrestling history that not getting to make an entrance is regarded as the better option for your career. Well, I, I can think of one person that might feel that way, but we'll cover him later. Okay. By the way, first match on the new show, and they managed to make it Tom versus Tom. Yeah. Really? <laughs> hmm? Well, they tried to get Tim burned, but he was apparently busy with something. Oh, okay. As Greg says that Jammer does his training on the beach with wind sprints and runs three miles every morning, Jammer doffs his neon yellow-green jacket, it is nearly the 90s after all, and we're off. <laughs> I feel like he should be the third member of the Dynamic Dudes. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that from Outfit, yeah. 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 He at least doesn't bring a skateboard out. That's true, yeah. He, should, he really should have brought a surfboard out, though. He should have, yeah. See, at least he'd have an excuse for not using that. Yeah, yeah, it's a surfboard. <laughs> oh, you know, oh, I thought we'd make the entrance better. Don't make it a walkway. Make it look like it's water, and he's surfing down it. You might as well have. Yeah, right? <laughs> have him sit on a surfboard and, like, lean side to side. You make the, yeah. the bottom blue like he's on the water. Yeah, use your crappy green screen technology. Yeah. Then have him hop into frame when they're in the studio, as if he just shot off the thing. Ralph says, we'll be able to see things today that we've never seen him wrestling before right as the camera is pointing at Jammer's butt. Well, I, I, yeah, I've never seen it before. Yeah, technically accurate. Yeah, yeah. Arm Dragon hip-tossed by Burton, and he showboats as we get an entirely too close shot of some people sitting at what appears to be a sports bar that is most assuredly in this building and not a totally different place, despite the brick wall behind them that does not remotely resemble the walls we occasionally see behind the black curtains in this building and the completely different lighting. The alleged fans give a thumbs down. I guess the opposing football team sacked the quarterback. I read someone they had a theory on this. They think that might be B-roll from one of those bowling shows they used to run on like ESPN around this time. <laughs> and like they're so they're they're watching like a bowling tournament. Oh, okay. Which could make sense. It could be, could be. Yeah. Body slammed by Burton, and he shows off to the black curtains. Ralph tells Greg to punch the button so they can see a slow motion replay of that basic wrestling move. Jammer comes back with an arm drag, hip toss, and body slam. Same sequence as Burton. Kind of nice there. Mm -hmm. And the ref actually grants Burton a timeout when he signals for it. I have never seen that before, but Ralph acts like that's totally normal, so maybe it's an AWA thing. 
Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know that. Jammer evades Burton's strikes and hits some arm drags. A lady at the sports bar is very excited that her medium well-steaken potatoes have arrived. Mm -hmm. Jammer hits a power slam and the surfer splash for the three count and the win. Punch the button, Ralph demands, and we see slow-motion replays of the power slam and surfer splash, which Greg calls the jammer splash instead. So I'm I'm wondering, did Greg have to punch the button twice for that or just once? Yeah, that's a good question. I... It's a vague button, yeah. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Do what you want. Throw nebulous in its power. To go back to Future Force, it's that that yes. remote control he has for his hand that does everything. We're gonna make a lot of fans of Future Force. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It makes the case open, makes the thing fly out and attack and choke and then go back. And, yeah. Yes, yeah. The folks at the sports bar cheer as their favorite football team scored a first down. There you go. Thoughts on this one? Uh, it's pretty decent. There's nothing really special here, but same time they don't botch anything. <laughs> It's kind of that, eh, it's okay, middle ground. Yeah. I will tell you, I don't know if you got this in research, apparently Tommy Jammer started training wrestling in 1989, so he is a first-year wrestler. Oh, okay. Wikipedia has has his first matches in March. Okay. Or at least training started in March. Fair enough. Fair enough. I I think he does a respectable job here. Yeah. It's one of the things, if I didn't didn't look that up, I'd be like, oh, he's not very good. All I can do is those basic stuff that he do first-year wrestling, but... Yeah, it's his first year of wrestling, so it makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm on the same boat on it. it. It's a very basic TV match. Both guys just get a quick few moves and it's over. Mm-hmm. But they both seem perfectly capable. There's no story. It's just a jobber match with Burton getting to do a couple moves and then spending the rest of it taking Jammer's offense en route to a quick loss. Yes. But despite some bad camera angles, it's fine for what it is, and Jammer looked good, which was the point. Yeah. The only thing I will say, too, is that, and this is a more general thing that comes up, the idea that if you're a like normal size guy, like under say under 280 pounds, this is mm-hmm. picking a random exact amount of weight. If you do the jump barely off the ground splash, does it really impress me? It yeah, look, it doesn't look like a knockout move. Yeah, yeah. Even like Warriors one, Warriors is more impressive the way he drops you, especially because he was really inept about it. It might have actually hurt you dropping at you, but yes. But the actual splash part of it is like, eh, I guess you get through that too. I think his power slam was pretty good though. Oh yeah, no. So the the combination of them is okay, but yeah, I agree. The, the splash is like, you really should leave that move for larger dudes. Yeah. The normal guy standing splash does nothing for me. Yeah, yeah. So, there's not much between these two. Actually, I know Jammer was in the team challenge. Did I say Burton was in there? I didn't see him on the list. So he, he might have been part of the team challenge series, I, I would assume, if he's especially part of the roster. To clarify, my list is from reading guys recapping a whole bunch of these shows. And he would put the person's name, and then their team name. So if I saw it on there, I know they're on that team. Okay. So it's possible Burden wrestled on matches that weren't featured. So he might be part of the team, but otherwise, yeah, there's no story with them that I'm aware of. It's just this team challenge thing started. For all we know, this was taped for something separate. It might not even have been an idea at the time they did this. All right. As for Burton himself, he had a fairly long career as an enhancement talent, which is the mm-hmm. polite way of saying jobber. For the next 9 to 10 years, in WCW as well as other promotions like the USWA, it's one of the things, if you look at his career, just like the matches he's in, it looks really impressive, even though you have to realize he was just the guy here to get beat up. Yeah. But he would face many great wrestlers in WCW, including Randy Savage, okay. Lex Luger, the Legion of Doom, and Sting. Okay. Although it was the fake Sting. Okay. Still. Still, you know, yeah, they had a had a bit of a career. It wasn't him being the star, but I mean, look, if you can find steady work, oh, yeah. then 
great. <laughs> he was clearly considered reliable as a, as a enhancement talent. Yeah, exactly. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, so Tommy Jammer, obviously, as we covered, the AWA is not still around. They folded truly after this. He would work independent shows until 1994 when he officially retired. So he didn't have a very long career, unfortunately. That's sad. He, he seemed reasonably capable, just like you said, he, he seems new. Yeah. But yeah, I'm interested to see if he could have made it onto a bigger wrestling roster and see what he could have done. Yeah, yeah. We cut to a plain blue wall, in front of which are Baron Von Raschke and Sergeant Slaughter. Slaughter is in the midst of his promotional deal with G.I. Joe, so he has the G.I. Joe emblem on his fatigues. The Baron actually looks a little younger here than he did when he showed up on Starcade 1986, three years prior. <laughs> Maybe it's that Benjamin Button thing. There you go. The text notifies us that he is the captain of the Blitzers and is known as the Claw Master, while Sarge is the captain of the Snipers and known as America's Hero. From a really strategic standpoint, it's really like a bad year to call your team the Blitzers, because you're announcing what you're going to do every time. <laughs> Fair point. Maybe it's a misdirection. Oh, there you go. Master strategist, you know. There you go. Sarge, we've been friends for a long time, but there's nothing like a friend, friendly rivalry, right? Keep rolling. Well, I've got my <laughs> man, Hard Rock Paul Diamond. He's ready, he's disciplined, he obeys orders, and he's going after your man, Colonel De Beers. Can you say the same thing for the Colonel? Well, you're a lucky man, Baron, because your man will listen to you. The reason I stuck Colonel De Beers in this match is because every time I wrestle him, he finds a way to throw me over the top rope. He finds some way to get me on the floor. So I figure he can get your man on the floor easily. Well, I'll tell you something. I wish him a lot of luck because I've got Paul Diamond ready to drop kick your man over the top rope, ready to back drop your man over the top rope, and he will obey. That's all the people need to know. Oh, yeah? Well, you're dismissed. <laughs> the Baron just about loses it there, clearly about to start laughing as the yes. camera cuts. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I thought this was a pretty fun little promo, and I think it gets at one of the things that could be neat about the Team Challenge series idea. Since friends could end up on different teams and enemies on the same team, you could end up with some very fun pairings and promo opportunities. Case in point here, Sarge and Baron are entirely respectful to each other and seem to genuinely be enjoying themselves, mm -hmm. with Baron even seeming sympathetic to Sarge's plight just as much as he is enjoying the opportunity to score points for his team. And Sarge totally agreeing with Baron's critiques of his own guy. Yes. <laughs> so I thought it was a fun concept, and I really enjoyed seeing the two performers having a good time with each other. I am a little wary that the Team Challenge series is basically Battle Bowl, but for your whole roster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least it's not all tag matches, though. Right, right. And to be fair, as far as I can tell, they didn't put up tag teams. So if you're a tag team, you as a unit. The Destruction Crews together and things the like Texas that. The Texas Hangmen are together. There's, there's a bunch of that are together. Yeah. It's on the line of being Battleball-esque, which is never a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, I thought they had, they had a good rapport in the promo. It's nice. There are people that, obviously, having been in the wrestling business a long time, feel comfortable in front of the camera. Yeah. They don't always get their line exactly right, like uh, Baron there. Right. But yeah, they, they don't seem nervous. It's just generally not being good at delivering certain lines, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly can't, can't talk about that too much. <laughs> right, right, right. But, you know, to his credit, he does not let it throw him. He just goes ahead. Yeah. But at the same time, this is clearly pre-taped, so I'm not sure why you couldn't just say, hey, let's do another take. Yes. 
they just went with their instinct, I think, where you cut a lot of your promos live, so he just went ahead with it. Yeah. I am wary of the accidental spoiler from the Baron, though. When you talking about what, what Paul Diamond's going to do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. We go back to the announcers, and Ralph talks up the team challenge match between De Beers and Diamond, and brings up the Destruction crew. Greg says that Johnny Valiant, thankfully a different person than Jimmy Valiant, yes, says that the crew is going to be tag team champions, and Greg agrees that they're strong, but he doesn't like the way that they wrestle. Ralph throws to what may be the most wonderful promo in the history of professional wrestling. <laughs> we cut to the Destruction crew. Mean Mike Enos, <sighs> and Wayne the Train Bloom. They are standing in front of video footage of a pair of buildings, apparently the Curtis Hotel. They fake hitting the buildings with their sledgehammers, despite the fact that the buildings look like they're more than a block away. Yes. And the buildings start to collapse. I can only assume that the destruction crew's sledgehammers are a disguised Mjolnir and Stormbreaker. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. I love this promo, even before the two speak. (laughs) You're looking at the number one tag team in professional wrestling, the Destruction Crew. And on my right here, you have my partner, the meanest man in professional wrestling, Mean Mike Enos. And right here is the strongest man in professional wrestling, Wayne the Train Bloom. I think Vader would dispute both those claims. Destruction for all you jealous beer belly pot belly fat slobs. Take a at look. Home, take a look at the premier athletes of the 90s. Yeah. When your old lady looks over at you, she's gonna be dreaming about us. Yeah. And when we come into your living room live and in color, we're gonna <laughs> destroy you. <laughs> oh, this was wonderful. In a terrible kind of way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those promos that if you were like making a fake wrestling promotion, like the South Pole Regional Wrestling, I see what you would Yes. Do. Yes, exactly. But this is a real thing that was actually meant to be on TV. I say it wasn't on TV, it was meant to be on TV. Yeah, this is an actual promo that feels like a parody of promos. Yes. Yeah, the actual promo is basic heel stuff and probably would have worked better with an audience. Some of the lines are clearly more of the insult the live crowd to get a reaction variety, and they fall flat without a reaction. That's true, yeah. But what really makes it gold, or fool's gold anyway, is the combination of the video footage antics and the fact that neither guy has any clue what they should do with their sledgehammer while they talk. (laughs) That's true, yeah. (laughs) Just keep slapping their hands on the hammers, (laughs) and for lack of a better description, fondling them lovingly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Take a shot anytime one of them slaps the head of his hammer and you'll be passed out on the floor by the end of the promo. Yeah. It reminded me there's a bit in Samurai Cop. Mm-hmm. One of the henchmen, I guess it wasn't given enough direction, so he's standing there. He's holding his gun. He's just sort of rubbing it up and down the, right. the whole time. Like All you know was, you love your gun. You love your <laughs> yes. gun. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's polished that thing to shine. <laughs> and once he... <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 the most awkward thing. It's it's hilarious to watch. Yes. It's definitely a must see. If you can find this, it's definitely worth seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well well worth your time if you love cheesy promos. Mm-hmm. Our second match is the Destruction Crew, mean Mike Enos and Wayne the Train Bloom with Luscious Johnny Valiant versus Ricky Rice and 
Jerry Lynn? Uh, yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> so as you're talking about the, this question about when this was meant to air and when it was recorded. Mm-hmm. So according to Wikipedia, which is fairly good on date for all this stuff, the instruction crew actually won the AWA tag team titles on AWA Championship Wrestling on October 1st, 1989. Oh, okay. They won a tournament file, beating the team of Paul Diamond and Greg Gagne. Okay. Officially, the titles are vacated after the previous champions, the Olympians, being Ken Patera and Brad Reingans, uh, one were injured. Patera specifically was injured. So they made a tournament, because this is wrestling, and every title is determined by a tournament. <laughs> Yeah, so they wanted there. So it's a little confusing that this show, which has an October 23rd date on it, mentioned them as future champions and then want the championships, but they should already have them if time is any factor here. Yeah. I don't, I wish I knew, knew why it's like this. I don't know. <laughs> I guess if they recorded this in advance. Probably. So October 28th is probably wrong then, but yeah, it, I, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> It's just funny that they're talking about they should be the future champions when they are current champions. Apparently are if, the current champions. Yeah, yeah. If, if this timeline makes any sense. Yeah. Also, the other Greg Gagne was apparently not retired. He's doing commentary here like he's the long-retired wrestler. When yeah, yeah. Apparently just wrestling or about to just wrestle again. Okay, then. The Destruction crew are blessed with the nice stats screen. Enos' signature is kind of cool, actually. And cursed with the green screen entrance, with the exact same video wall footage of that poor guy in the yellow and black shirt falling off his chair. They have at least changed up the drab green background for a drab red background, though. Improvement? Kind of. (laughs) Valiant fills our glittery jacket quota for the night, and points to non-existent fans who are apparently well above the non-existent video wall fans that we actually see. I'll give him credit for at least committing to this insane concept. Yes, yeah. Ricky Rice and future ECW stalwart Jerry Lynn are in the ring. They do not get an entrance, for better or for worse. Mostly better. Yes. But Lynn does have an awesome mustache. He does, yeah. He actually, I thought, looked a lot like Magnum TA here. I can see that, yeah. Not the, not the same uh, trunks or anything, but yes. like the, the, the hairstyle and the mustache. His trunks are very, very gloriously 80s, though. Yes, yes, they are. The Destruction crew set aside their sledgehammers and orange construction worker vests, and we get a shot of people at the sports bar making thumbs down and rude gestures at the drunk guy doing bad karaoke. (laughs) Rice and Enos start. Enos headlock, Rice whips free, Enos shoulder block, rinse and repeat twice more. But on the final time, Rice leapfrogs Enos and hits a hip toss and some arm drags. A lady at the sports bar encourages her boyfriend up on the karaoke stage. That's good. Rice and Lynn trade off working Enos' arm, as Greg notes that both crew members had arm injuries in the past, so Rice and Lynn are using good strategy here. A guy at the sports bar is happy with that lady's boyfriend singing. Rice monkey flip an arm drag, and he oddly pauses, which Greg tries to excuse as him getting the wind knocked out of him by his own monkey flip. Sure. Come again? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Enos rakes Rice's eyes and tags Bloom, who immediately gets arm dragged. Rice and Lynn trade off working Bloom's arm, but Bloom pulls Lynn's hair to get him into the corner and tries his freight train flying shoulder block, but Lynn dodges and Bloom eats turnbuckle. Punch the button! That's the first time that the slow-mo seemed worth it. Yeah. 
People at the sports bar are worried about whether their appetizers will get there before their meal. It's important, important concern to have, yeah. Enos knees Lynn from behind as Valiant allegedly distracts the ref, though the ref seems to be looking right at Enos to me. Well, it, it's mental distraction. He was talking oh, okay. telepathically. I get you. Bloom strikes and a back suplex, and tag to Enos for a double back elbow. Enos lifts Lynn on his shoulder, rams him into the turnbuckle, and hits a kind of weak shoulder breaker. Back at the sports bar, the drunk guy just went back on stage and no one's happy about that. I can see that, yeah. Enos' power slam brings Rice into protest, but that distracts the ref, and Enos scoops Lynn on his shoulders for the destruction crew to steal the Road Warriors' doomsday device for the three count and the win. We get an instant replay of Lynn taking that fall on his knees. He cane bumps the hell out of that. <laughs> yes, he does. Uh, thoughts on this one? It's decent, but I had a kind of an issue with this match. Mm-hmm. So, the Trishan crew are big, tough, scary, dominant bad guys. Yes. So, they each come out for their match, pick a part of job, or maybe get the hope spot, tags in, but ultimately they control everything. That seems like how that this kind of match works. Yes. However, the dominant heels here, the destruction crew, work as faces in peril for half the match. Pretty much, yeah. The the lone exception to that being that the uh, face team really isn't cheating at all. Right, right. But the, the idea that they're, they're constantly on the wrong end of the offense mm-hmm. and fighting from beneath, and then once they get advantage, it's pulling one side the other way. Yeah. It's very confusing. I, I don't know who booked this match as far as like the logic there. Other than having them do their finisher and in a couple moves, it doesn't really build destruction crew as a team you can't take down. No, it doesn't. And that's, I'm not sure. It seems like the sort of match that would be intended to be a jobber match. Yes. But like you said, it's not really booked like one. It's booked like Rice and Lynn are themselves a significant threat. Right. But I mean, they don't get a match graphic. They don't get an entrance. They don't, yeah. they don't build their accolades and like talk about how this team has won the title before or in contention. Yeah. They're just the two guys in the ring. I think Greg does say that the crew has a tough match coming up mm-hmm. at one point, so maybe you're supposed to gather from that. I did like the old arm injury story and how they were working the arm. I thought that gave you a way for Lynn and Rice to reasonably wear down two bigger yeah. guys, but I agree, it's pretty one-sided. I do love the logic of, this guy's working my arm and shoulder. I should dive in the corner with my shoulder. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it just it confused me that that match is booked Completely opposite of the way you would think it is. Mm-hmm. But it, it is nice to see Jerry Lynn in his uh, lovely blonde mustache and pink and black uh, glorious neon tights. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's a short tag match, but it is pretty repetitive. Mm-hmm. We see the same spots repeated several times. For instance, the headlock, whip-free, shoulder block happens twice in a row, though it is subverted the third time. Right. The double axe handle off the top rope comes in twice, and the charging arm drag sequence comes in twice. It's not a problem if this was a longer match, but as it is, it feels like the teams don't have enough spots to fill out this short match. Yeah. Well, there's never there's never any tag team moves between uh, Lynn and Rice. Yeah, they, there's a little bit of them like holding the arm for someone else to do a move, but they don't have like a, a really cool double team spot. Yeah. yeah. The moves are performed well, though, and the parts of the match that are not repeated over and over are pretty impactful, save for the Eno you know, shoulder breaker that looked pretty soft. Yeah. This was longer than it should have been given the content and booked kind of backwards, like you said, but it's an acceptable, simple tag match to get the crew over and let Rice and Lynn still get some spotlight. So it was fine. Yeah, that's true. There's nothing offensive about it. Yeah. And a much better Mike Eno's performance than the last one we saw. Yes. (laughs) 
I mean, in his case, he was like, just backstage, I need a guy, so put a mask on, go. Yeah, yeah. A tremendously quaffed Eric Bischoff, seriously, that is huge hair. It is, yes. <laughs> comes in with a microphone to talk to the crew. And the commentators talk all over the first part of the promo, so we don't get much of it. Yes. I did catch Bischoff asking if it was necessary while pointing at Lynn, and the commentators had made a point that the crew was continuing to beat Lynn up when they probably already had him beat before the Doomsday device. Yes. Bloom says something like, yes, it was necessary, and the commentators finally realize that a promo is in fact going on and throw to it. Yeah. This is uncalled for in the sport of professional wrestling. I think uh, Ralph and Joe Blanchard, the president of the AWA, views this tape. He's going to let a heavy fine on the destruction crew. The destruction crew, me and Mike Edison, weighing the train bloom with luscious Johnny Valiant celebrating a win. Let's go to Eric Bischoff ringside. In fact, he's got the nerve to get in, then he's going to get himself busted up. Well, this is still a sport, so. Let me just tell you something right now. This whole hat is flying. Okay, the little bit of this promo that we actually get to hear was pretty good. Yeah. Bloom and Valiant both sell the team nicely as one aiming not just to win, but to injure their opponents for having the guts to fight them. But unfortunately, poor audio makes it hard to hear the promo, even once the commentary team is mostly done talking over it. <laughs> so this really should have been retaped, since I'd assume that was an option with this show. Yeah. It had enough good, I would have liked to hear it for real. I would give them a slight credit for at least for piping in booze in the background as if there's a crowd booing the promo. Yeah. That, that small touch I'll give them, even though they do talk over so much of the promo, you can't hear it. Yeah. So the boos actually are the good thing, are just extra noise over the conversation, unfortunately. Yeah. Because the way they do it. It's really, it's got really terrible audio, and then you've got the announcers just constantly distracting you with their lingering commentary on the match. It's just like, this is clearly pre-taped. Yeah. You don't have to do this. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. I feel like if they're, if they're going to talk over it, just have them be in little silhouettes at the bottom of the screen the whole time. <laughs> yes. Put, put a little robot, like robot uh, Vern Gagne, the third person with them. Or his dog, his dog. Oh, the dog, yeah, yeah. of course, the dog. Perfectly, yeah. yeah. It's a shame that they talk over so much of it. It's it is. decent, yeah. Yeah, uh, Johnny Valiant, I'm mean, not... Wait, that's the right one, yeah. yeah Johnny Valiant right. seems to have a lot of character going on, and honestly, Bloom does as well. It seems like he really is getting into it, but you can't hear a word of it. So Yeah, exactly. You mentioned it briefly, but there's a weird thing with Eric Bischoff's hair here. You notice that? Yes. Okay, so I know his natural hair is black, from having seen his natural hair in WCW, at least before it turned gray and he dyed it black again. But so, it clearly started black, but then it's like he was trying to dye it blonde... And it, he got non-committal halfway through. It just kind of gave up. It's blonde-ish. It's like between blonde and gray. It looks like kind of salt and pepper, doesn't it? A bit, yeah. Yeah, it's and and this is years before we saw him with clearly like jet black hair. Yes, which I don't think he was dying at that time. But yeah, no, yeah, maybe he was dying. It 
And then stopped dying it and then started dying it again? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's tinted like it was starting with blonde and like either it faded at this point and he needed to reapply it or what? But it's like not quite blonde, not quite gray, definitely not black hair. It is definitely strange. Combine that with the, the like bicycle helmet shape. Yes. <laughs> could, could protect him if he got pile drive. Let's put it that way. Yes. It's a, it's a strange look for Eric Bischoff. I, I, at first didn't realize who it was and they're like, what? <laughs> That's you? He looks like he's, he either just come from or is going to prom. Yes. But yeah, oh, I got to stop before prom on doing this whole wrestling thing. <laughs> I can't 100% confirm this, but one thing I read, the very last bit of new action that AW recorded before they went under was a match in which the instruction crew lost the tag team titles that I guess they had or would get at some point around this time. Okay. To DJ Peterson and the Trooper. I found the video of their win, like on the recap thing Lee Marshall would do. Mm-hmm. Which, like, a few clips you can find of Lee Marshall recap in the shows. It's kind of funny how that made it in, but not the shows. Is it great? It's, uh, okay. <laughs> they have an actual crowd there. I will clarify, it's not a full crowd. Mm-hmm. It's an AWA 1990 crowd, but there's people there nonetheless. It's not in the black void of space like this is. Yeah, yeah. From what I understand, there were there were some shows that they filmed in just a TV studio going forward and some that they did still do in front of crowds. So it's not like they couldn't get any crowd ever, Yes, but just not consistently enough to be able to do it all the time. If the report I read is right, this is the last new action they recorded and aired as a show. Okay. The show would actually continue for a while with recaps of previous action and like showing you old matches, basically to fill the TV slot, even though they couldn't afford to tape anything. Right. So it's not the last bit of action, but it's the last new action, if that makes okay. sense. The production crew, obviously leaving the AWA when they went under, would go to WWF to become the Beverly Brothers, a much more famous team they were under. But did they ever knock down buildings from 100 feet away as the Beverly Brothers? I think not. They had capes, though. Those purple capes are pretty pretty cool. That does make up for a lot. Yes. <laughs> uh, as for Ricky Rice... He would go on to work a few territories and be a enhancement talent, aka Jobber, in WBF. Mm-hmm. He is in, in the Team Challenge series, but not as Ricky Rice. He is a master wrestler known as the Unknown Soldier. Oh, okay. So Ricky Rice is wrestling in the Team Challenge series. Just I guess the name Ricky Rice isn't a good enough name to be in the Team Challenge series. Which is weird because from how Eric talks about this match, it sounds like this match was part of the Team Challenge series. Right. It doesn't seem that got confirmed, though, because I, I didn't see Jerry Lynn on any of the listings for these matches. <laughs> so it's possible he was in and then, and then dropped out, but... And it might mean that Ricky Rice was in as Ricky Rice and as the Unknown Soldier, then. Yes. <laughs> Given how random the matches were, I'm surprised they didn't accidentally book him that way. <laughs> it's weird how Ricky Rice is missing one of this match. Oh, well. <laughs> as for Jerry Lynn, obviously he would go and do a lot more yes. than Ricky Rice. It is notable that he was the last person officially to challenge Louis Zabisco for the AWA Championship on television. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I felt like Rice was actually pretty good in, mm-hmm. in this match, like somewhat repetitive, but everything he did had a good snap to it. Yeah. And and Lynn obviously is quite good even at this point and would go on to be very, very good. Yeah. From reading up on this, it looks like Ricky Rice started wrestling in 1986, so he's got a few years under his belt at this point. Okay. Lynn started in 88, so he's got more experience than Tommy Jammer, but... Not a lot. Yeah, and you don't get to see a whole lot of it, to be fair. He, he does the arm drag stuff fine, but yeah, 
some reason, even though I know it's unrealistic, I expect more when I see Jerry Lynn in a match. Yeah, yeah. But this is definitely very early in his career. Oh, yeah. You can definitely see the potential in him, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. He doesn't botch anything, and he moves really well, yeah. Mm-hmm. We go back to Ralph and Greg, and they say that the Destruction crew are on their way to the tag titles. Up next are supposedly Rock and Roll, cut from the WWE Network version, and the Beverly Hills Knockouts. But instead, we come in with Sergeant Slaughter standing in front of the red and white stripes part of an American flag. Could they not get the stars, too, to cut another promo? You stand at ease. You know, the Team Challenge Series is going on hot and heavy. And my team today is going to be represented by Colonel De Beers, the scum, the slime, the maggot. And he's going up against a member from Baron Valerowski's team. Hard Rock Paul Diamond in an over-the-top rope King of the Hill match. Well, I picked the Colonel because many times when that referee's back was turned, he threw my carcass, my body, <laughs> over the top rope onto the cement floor. Colonel the Beards has that jungle savvy. He likes to win. He doesn't like to lose. And let me tell you, Colonel, if you do lose, you're going to disgrace my team and America. So you better do a good job, or you'll be back on the Camp Slaughter Farm doing more push-ups, maggots. We cut to De Beers in front of a miscolored South African flag. It might just be the age of the video, though. Not since I was an officer candidate in South Africa's officer candidate school has an enlisted man ever asked or told Colonel De Beers what to do. But you're right about one thing, Sergeant. I've got a lot of pride. casualties along the way. Now, Sergeant, henceforth, I do not want you to speak to me directly. I want you to go through the Joint Chiefs of Staff for any communique that you might have with Colonel Adairs. I'm going to win this battle today, not for you, not for America, but for the pride of South Africa and Colonel Adairs. This was entirely unnecessary. It made the exact same points that Sarge had already made in the promo with the Baron earlier. Yes. And it's made very awkward by the strange choice to have them cut two separate promos that were kind of super glued together, and by the loud drumming and chanting background track that gets uh, moderately offensive. Yeah. It's funny to see the two team members clashing, but this would have been much better with them in the same room getting in each other's faces. And maybe, I don't know, waving actual flags at each other. Yeah. Done this way just came off as amateurish. For sure, yeah. I will say the uh, background chanting and drumming has a better rhythm than the cheerleaders at the beginning of the It does. Show. It does. Definitely. So hired them instead. <laughs> yeah, it's weird that, that we get the same promo essentially twice. Mm-hmm. And then in alternate universe, Colonel De Beers is off somewhere yelling just off screen. Yes. I, I did like the uh, the Joint Chiefs line, though. That was yes. that was pretty funny. They had good lines in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, it feels like, why do we have this and the promo with Baron on the same show? If anything, yeah, it seems like you should have the Baron and them cut their promo like they did, and then you sort of pan wider like when he walks into the frame and starts this whole thing and starts complaining yeah. about him. Yeah, yeah, have him get ticked off that Sarge was kind of trashing him in his team promo and just storm in there. 
yeah, do it all as one thing, and that works. Then yeah. you don't have to have Sarge basically say all his lines again. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, who was in charge of putting the show together? Wasn't sure if they had Slaughter use the promo about explaining why he picked the beers, so they just put both of them in. Didn't realize somehow. Yeah. Any other thoughts on it? Other than the real awkwardness of the South African general guy talking about winning the war, uh, no. Yeah. We cut back to Ralph and Greg, and Greg says that De Beers and Sarge have never liked each other, but De Beers has to follow orders here and win points for his team. Ralph throws to the Beverly Hills knockouts match, and Greg says he can hardly wait. Our third match is a Beverly Hills knockouts match. Slaughterhouse Sean with the Pink Lady versus the Blonde Bomber with Mustang Sally. And the referee for this one is Iron Mike Carson. Why did they tell me the name of the ref for this match, but not for the others? <laughs> that is clearly more important. Yeah. guess maybe I'm just supposed to know who the other guy is because I've been watching AWA TV all the time, but... Ugh. Interesting theory. Yeah. <laughs> this match takes place in a tiny ring surrounded by women in lingerie. Yeah, or at very least bikinis, it's unclear. Yeah, so, some of it's definitely more the former than the latter, but yeah. Right. And now that makes it a huge difference, just the yeah. things, yeah. I mean, I guess it's a change from the black curtains? Yeah. <laughs> a lady holds up a sign for the start of round one. Um, and this is kind of a, basically a boxing match. Yes. As opposed to a wrestling match, so yeah. they're wearing uh, big old uh, boxing gloves. It's a, it's a particular kind of boxing, in fact, yes. Yes. Before the bell, Bomber decks Sean, but Sean fires back with punches, and Bomber ducks through the ropes. Kayfabe is completely abandoned, as we get a shot of Sean punching directly at the camera, which of course means that the cameraman is standing there, not her opponent. <laughs> we get more of that from Bomber, and again from Sean. Sean finally keeps punching Bomber as the bell rings, and Sally protests. Round two... And Ralph notes that this is a three-round match with a three-knockdown rule and a ten-point system, and, quote, you can't be saved by the bell only in round three. So you can be saved by the bell in every round except round three? Or does it mean you can be saved in round three but not in the other rounds? I'm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Sean knocks Bomber down, but Sally helps Bomber up, which is apparently okay. Bomber throws off her gloves and starts wrestling, leading to a tremendously awful suplex not helped by the small ring. That is also apparently okay, or the referee is at least powerless to stop her. Gloves back on, and Bomber knocks Sean down with punches and shoulder blocks, then gets on top and utterly misses every single punch. <laughs> Even Greg points that out. <laughs> Kicks by Bomber, but Sean grabs the leg, swings her around, and totally whiffs on a punch. Bomber generously goes down anyway, but is saved by the bell, so I guess that answers that question? Yeah. At the start of round three, Sally chokes Sean with a towel. The pink lady protests, and that distracts the ref, so Sally gets a backbreaker on Sean, but Sean soon reverses a bomber whip and mostly misses a lunging punch. Both go down as a guy in the sports bar celebrates a touchdown. Sean gets up, Bomber doesn't, so Sean wins. <sighs> I'll be honest, I didn't expect you to actually write a recap for this. I was torn. I was I was not going to, but then I looked back and saw the things on the punching the camera mm -hmm. and stuff. There, there was enough stupid that I had felt the need to note. <laughs> oh, okay. Thoughts on this one? Um, I mean, I didn't rewatch it. 
or take notes because I figured you weren't going to talk about it. So not really. <laughs> I just assume we're just going to mention it happen, then then the show moves on. But that's fine. No, I'm fine with how you did it. I just, yeah, I didn't prep like I did for anything else because it's definitely not <laughs> anything else. Well, I, I think you can probably agree with my comments, though. Abysmal and embarrassing. Yes. This was demeaning and needlessly sexualized. Yeah. It had no place on this show, uh-huh. and its inclusion made no sense. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the show's concept. It doesn't even manage to keep a sense of fictional reality with shots that simply can't exist if the match is supposed to be legit. The rules were confusing, the action was absolutely awful, with some of the worst punches I've ever seen, and a truly dangerous suplex that just shouldn't have even been attempted given the small ring. I think we might have found something that outdoes the Zambui Express match. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky one. It's funny, I had forgotten that the taxi tried to do a wrestling move in this. Yes. Because I, I watched it the first time with you, and again, I did not rewatch this for recaps <laughs> or anything. <laughs> so, it's funny, because the only thing I could say is that reminds me of WrestleMania 2, where they have the boxing match between Piper and Mr. T, mm-hmm. but that ends when Piper takes the gloves off and body slams him. So. Yeah. It's just like n- nothing about this match makes any sense. No, I'm not entirely clear these women are even like related to the AWA at all. I don't think so. They're the they're. I mean, it's the Beverly Hills Knockouts, which I gather is like a separate organization, purely for this uh, this disgrace to the concept of boxing and or wrestling. There's a morbid fun in hearing this sort of poor Greg Gagne try to call us like he actually cares. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Ralph seems to like be able to at least genuinely sound interested, and Greg is like, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as I noted, he actually does point out when she just totally whiffs on every single punch. Yeah. I, I gather he was probably kind of insulted as as an actual wrestler. Yes. He probably was not pleased with this being on the show. <laughs> yeah, when, when your content is insulted to Rambo Greg Gagne, that yes. does something bad. <laughs> So, for anyone who might be interested in looking at this show overall, just out of historical curiosity, skip this match. Yeah. (laughs) Ralph says that the AWA has always been the pioneer, and they're on the cutting edge with the Team Challenge series. Greg explains the concept of the Team Challenge series and lays out this week's match, but... As we established, Bischoff said the Destruction Crew was earning points for their team in their match, so I'm not really clear on whether things are or are not part of the Team Challenge series. That's a good question. Anyway, Greg says that the upcoming match is the King of the Hill match, which is a one-on-one match that can only be won by throwing your opponent over the top rope to the floor, so it's kind of the ending moments of any given battle royale. Yes. We cut to a scoreboard, showing that Larry's Legends are in the lead with 16 points, followed by Baron's Blitzers with 15, and Sarge's Snipers are in last with 13 points. The team names are written kind of strangely. The captain's name is in proper case, and then Legends, Blitzers, or Snipers are in uppercase. Yeah, that's true. That is a little weird. (laughs) I didn't notice it the first time, and then second time, I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) It's like they somehow thought of the team name and wasn't sure who's going to be in charge yet, so they added it later. Yeah. Though, obviously, it wouldn't make sense if you reverse it. It wouldn't be like Sarge's Legends or... Baron snipers, so yeah, yeah. You think they two are connected directly, but maybe that's the explanation for why. Greg says that Sarge's team really needs the win here, which I'd agree with, even though I'm not at all sure how many points it will earn them. Let's say twelve. I don't know. Okay. We cut to Paul Diamond, who is waiting in orbit around the Earth. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, he's a hard rock. He can survive up there. <laughs> 
He's getting in his Max Moon gimmick early, I guess. Oh, yeah. The time has come. The beginning of the Team Challenge Series. And yes, the first match has myself for Team Baron Von Raschke facing Sergeant Slaughter's team member, Colonel De Beers. Now, yes, I know, Slaughter, that you knew the feelings De Beers had for me. And you think he's going to be able to beat me in this King of the Hill match. Well, let me tell you something, De Beers. You were sent once by none other than Diamond Dallas Page to eliminate me, but you didn't do it. Here I am, ready for a King of the Hell match, brother. Ready, more ready than I've ever been. And let me tell you something. What you have to understand is now you gotta face Hard Rock. And you know what that means. That means victory for Team Baron Von Raschke. And that's all the people need to know. So wait, Paul says this is the first match of the Team Challenge series, but the teams already have points, so he's clearly wrong. Or it was right when he said it. Fair point, fair point. (laughs) Maybe. Otherwise, the promo was alright, I guess. Diamond nicely brings in previous storylines between him and De Beers, carrying forward earlier feuds into the current storyline. Get an unexpected DDP reference, too. Yes. That was cool. Mm Mm-hmm. The outer space backdrop was ludicrous, Mm -hmm. but at least he didn't try to interact with it like the Destruction Crew did. (laughs) Also kind of a nice touch, he ends the promo by mimicking the Baron's catchphrase and his claw pose. I did notice that, yeah. Bit of team unity there. It's not a bad promo, but it definitely has weird emphasis on certain parts. Yes. Where it's just on the yelling! Yeah. (laughs) He, He doesn't really seem to make a good argument, he's just like... He, he starts out the promo with, I'm going to win, and then kind of ends the promo with, I'm going to win because I'm me. Yeah. <laughs> but he does a good job of like bringing together some storyline elements, so I got to give him some credit for that. Given his name, I kind of want to see a match between Hard Rock, Paul Diamond, and, and Heavy Metal Van Hammer. Yeah. I mean, I also don't want to, but... Is it just me, or is it really weird that the guy already has Diamond in his name, and you felt the need to give him a further nickname of Hard Rock? Which is, it's just a diamond. Right, right. It's like you called him Paul Diamond Diamond. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, like Precious Metal Paul Diamond isn't as good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, shiny thing that goes in a ring that goes on someone's finger, diamond. Yes. <laughs> Paul the Engagement Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, what's sad is that's ridiculous and it also almost sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Paul, the engagement diamond. Brett, the hitman heart. Yeah, exactly. Equal, equally good nicknames. <laughs> I do love the outer space thing. It, it, it is hilarious, isn't it? And the, and the woo noises in the background are yeah. great. But what part of him is space? Exactly? I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand why he's in outer space. That's not a diamond thing, right? That's Yeah, yeah. Like, the James Bond movie Diamonds Are Forever doesn't involve space. That's Moonraker. Moonraker does, So yeah, maybe yeah. they got him mixed up? I don't know. <laughs> you could have had him standing in front of, like, a wall of gems glittering brilliantly or something. Maybe they maybe they thought that looked too heelish. Yeah, maybe. It's, it's so bizarre, but it, I mean, I love it for that. Yeah. Our fourth match is Hard Rock Paul Diamond versus Colonel De Beers in a King of the Hill match. I assume from the name they're fighting over propane. <laughs> Both guys are cursed with the crappy green screen entrance this time. That's true, yeah. Diamond's color is blue, and De Beers gets red. 
We get a nice touch on the stat screens, though. Debeer's height and weight are shown in metric. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Debeer's looks particularly ridiculous marching out, especially when he turns sideways and looks like he's going to walk through the video wall itself. <laughs> We've got to get at those fans, man. The crowd at the bar is pretty happy because the local band just said they were going to play Freebird. Nice. The ring is loud for this one. Every footstep sounds like a gunshot. <laughs> it does, yeah. I don't know what happened, but they just like suddenly turned up the audio a lot. Well, not to get ahead, they make mention in the next match about how they mic'd, they mic'd it. So maybe this yes. is a test version of that. Maybe. Diamond hits a few head scissors, and Greg accurately points out that might not be tactically wise when a miss could send him out over the ropes. Indeed, De Beers dodges a third, and Diamond lands on the ropes. De Beers tries to lever him over, but Diamond holds onto the ropes for dear life. De Beers knees Diamond in the gut, and you can hear Diamond's groan so loudly it's like he's wearing a microphone himself. Someone in the bar thinks the band's rendition of Freebird could use a little bit of work. Fair enough. The light outside the ring, I noted, looks like a moon in the night sky. It does, yeah. It's like one. Dis- it's like it's on the wall, yeah. <laughs> so distracting. It's like sticking out from among the black curtains or something. So yeah. it, it's it's so funny. They run the ropes and trade moves, leading to a diamond drop kick that looks good initially until the replay shows that De Beers fell before they even made contact. Greg does try to cover that a little bit. Yeah, I thought he did a nice job actually covering it. But he says that De Beers tried to dodge, but Diamond partially tagged him, which he does. His one foot makes contact. Yes. De Beers back suplex, and he goes up top for a falling headbutt to the shoulder, then kicks Diamond over the top rope, but Diamond lands on the apron. A woman at the sports bar can't believe the deal. Her friend says that she got on one of those newfangled cell phones. It only weighs 12 pounds. <laughs> De Beers suplexes Diamond back in, but Diamond dodges a top rope headbutt and hits a knee lift. The loud groans sound like someone put the uh, wrong kind of tape in. <laughs> The band's performance of Freebird got a lot better, and a dude that looks like Jim Cornette is pretty happy with it. He, he did, right? I mean, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, I know. Yeah. I, I think I'm about, yeah. Diamond tries to throw De Beers out, but De Beers punches free and hits a bulldog that lands Diamond's face right on his thigh. Yes. That could not have felt very good. Ralph says that Diamond is staggering and swaggering, which sounds like a dustyism. <laughs> it really does, yeah. He's Jack Swaggering? <laughs> The ref warns De Beers about punches, but Greg notes that he can't be DQ'd in this match. Yeah. De Beers goes through the ropes for some elbows to Diamond's throat, and Ralph asks if De Beers could be DQ'd for that. And you can hear the sigh in Greg's voice as he explains, again, that there's no DQs in this match. Yes. <laughs> Back in, De Beers throws Diamond over the top rope, but Diamond hangs on. But De Beers actually notices and bites his hand only for Diamond to skin the cat to try to head-scissor him over the ropes in a neat spot. De Beers kicks free, but Diamond rolls in. De Beers tries a pile driver, but he's too close to the ropes, and Diamond back-body drops him over the ropes to the floor for the win. The slow-motion replay really shows how cooperative De Beers had to be with that spot, Yeah. so it's probably a move better left at full speed. Yeah, halfway through the lift, he grabs the rope so he'll rotate over properly. Yeah, yeah. Diamond celebrates as the crowd at the bar gets into Freebird's long guitar solo. Baron did spoil the match for you. Yes, he did. Yes, he said he, he backdropped him out of the ring, and there he goes. <laughs> now, given the confusing timeline of this, did he see that match already? Entirely possible. Yeah. Though Sarge seemed not to have, so. <laughs> That's true, yeah. That does add layers to that earlier promo, though. If you assume that Baron actually had seen the tape of the match, 
Mm-hmm. And Sarge wasn't aware it had been on yet, so Baron's just like egging him on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he's gonna win. <laughs> <laughs> my my Baron von Roschke needs work. It's like, <laughs> a little bit. I, I've little got bit. a lot of practice, you know. Credit credit to you for trying, man. Okay, thank you. Thoughts on this one? Solid but basic action. There's definitely some issues with Paul Diamond on those first couple hit sensors. Mm-hmm. That's a fairly common move from this era. It kind of stopped doing it eventually. But I think the problem for me is I think of people like Ricky Steamboat doing that. Yes. And there's no comparison. No, no, no. They're they're fair enough, but there's a pause in the middle of them. I think it's the second one he's a bit sloppy on, like the rotation over. Yeah. Yeah. There's just some weird logic in this match, like doing the head scissors and constantly jumping at the corner like that, which backfires. Where the fact that Beers has Diamond on the outside and then Suplex in the back into the ring? Yeah. Why? A little bit weird, yeah. Hadn't thought about that one, actually, but yeah. 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 Obviously, it's not the plan to finish, but that'd be a good time to do that reverse suplex. We lift them up and then drop them. Yes. But yeah, it's it's all right. Um, I thought they worked fairly well together. I will say, once you start looking for De Beers adjusting his pants, because he's not wearing a <laughs> belt, that's like the only thing you see for a while. I don't know why he just didn't just wear a belt for this match. Would have helped a lot. Otherwise, yeah, other than some sloppy execution and some questions with how the match logic worked, I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. From reading up on De Beers, he would do the pile driver a lot, so it's not it's not quite the I'm going to do a pile driver even though I've never done it before, just so I can get countered thing. It's more of a normal move that he just chooses to do in that location. Right. There is that aspect of it, for sure. The best thing for me was, besides watching De Beers constantly pull his pants up, was watching him really try to work the crowd, even though there's no one there. <laughs> yes. He's not the best at that from this show, but he's really good. Yep. Yeah, I, I thought this was a perfectly decent match. I don't have a lot to complain about, other than the one bulldog that seems to go a little bit wrong, and like you said, a little bit of sloppiness on the head scissors. Mm-hmm. It had some story to it, which I appreciated. There's some swings in the action, and there's a few nice little touches, most notably the bit where Diamond hangs on the ropes after being thrown out, which normally the heel would just totally miss, mm-hmm. but De Beers notices and tries to do something about it. It kept moving, and it actually had a sense of a story rather than just being action for action's sake. The ending was pretty obvious. Nobody sets up a pile driver that close to the ropes if they're not going over them. Yeah, seats seat are really through the pedigree as well. Yeah. I would have liked it better if they, since Diamond's winning anyway, if they just actually had Diamond succeed at head-scissoring De Beers out a few moments before. Oh, yeah, sure. But it did work. And this did more than the earlier matches and didn't overstay its welcome. So I liked it. Obviously, they're both part of the Team Challenge series. De Beers would be part of the most infamous match in AWA history, (laughs) the Great Turkey Hunt. (laughs) This is part of the... The later studio tapings, although the studio is actually worse in that one. You saw from the clip I sent you. Yes. It's like big pink walls. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't keep the black curtains. Those at least look moderately dignified. Yeah. Yeah, so it's him and Jake Milliman. It's a turkey on a pole match. The winner is whoever retrieves the turkey from the pole and has it when the ref sees them. <laughs> so it is an uncooked turkey hanging on a pole in a wrestling ring. Gosh which I'm sure smelled great and felt great in your hands. <laughs> it also has a, a screwy finish because De Beers actually gets the turkey while Millman's down, but the ref is also down. And Millman sort of casually grabs as, he, as De Beers walks by him to approach the referee and thus wins the match. Wow. Yes. It's also a little funny 
Jake Milliman has a very eerie similarity to uh, Otis from Tucker and Otis and WB currently. Mm. The bigger, like, uh, low center gravity, bearded, every man to a wrestler. They could be cousins, you know, I know they're actually not. There's a lot of similarities there. I don't know the Team Challenge series is kind of funny. So before the Team Challenge series would actually end, Sergeant Slaughter would leave the company. Mm-hmm. That caused an issue, and they had to do a little bit of reworking with things. So they put Colonel De Beers in charge of the team, which I guess is what he wanted the whole time anyways. Yeah, fair, fair enough, yeah. And they went from Sergeant Snipers to De Beers' Diamond Cutters. <laughs> not, not as catchy. No, uh, though, I mean, it, he did work with DDP earlier. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole Blood Diamond thing there, which is clever, but also terrible. Yeah. As well. And obviously, as you hinted at before, Paul Diamond would be Max Moon in WBF because the outfit fitted him after Conan quit the company. Yeah, it was originally meant for Conan, but yeah. when Conan left, they're like, uh, okay, who fits? Yeah. <laughs> and Diamond apparently was similar enough in shape. <laughs> yeah, OSW on one of their episodes covering Raw covered the Max Moon thing. Apparently, they'd spent a good amount of money, like... I bet. Four to five figures, let's say, on this, this outfit and gear. And they didn't want to give up after a couple appearances and Conan quit, so... Paul Diamond fit, fit the suit and he fit the bill. <laughs> we cut back to Ralph and Greg, and Greg builds up how Sarge's team just lost a match, but Sergeant Slaughter himself is up next, aiming to earn some points himself against the Terminator. So our final match is Sergeant Slaughter versus the Terminator. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Sergeant Slaughter's signature includes Yo-Jo. Cute. <laughs> Sadly, he too is cursed with the green screen entrance. Appropriately, his background is green. He salutes to the non-existent crowd and talks to the video walls. I am worried for his sanity. Yeah. Terminator avoids having to make an entrance. He's a large, hairy fellow with a mullet and face paint. Meanwhile, at the sports bar, a couple kids clap along as Freebird finishes up. Now, is it the Freebirds playing Freebird, or is it different? If only. If only, man. Fair enough. Sarge and the Terminator taunt each other, and the ring mics are still really loud. But despite that, all I really heard was Terminator yelling, I ain't afraid of you! See, I actually kind of enjoy that aspect, that they're trying to trash talk each other. I, I do, I do. I actually, I, I wish that I could hear it better. Yeah. I can hear Terminator generally, but can't hear Sarge. I think he's too gravelly. <laughs> yeah, a bit. One of Terminator's best lines does slip through, though, so I, I do enjoy it for that. You ain't so tough, Terminator yells. And after Sarge shoves him into the corner, Terminator notes, Yeah, you got a bit more weight than me. <laughs> <laughs> Sarge gets a genuine chuckle out of that one. Greg takes time to note that we can hear what the wrestlers are saying, talking over whatever it was that Sarge was saying in the process. <laughs> the ref kind of looks like Tony Schiavone. <laughs> it, it isn't him, but it kind of looks like him. <laughs> I can see that. Terminator and Sarge push each other around and land forearm shots, but Terminator can't move Sarge with shoulder blocks. A Sarge drop toehold leads to a side headlock as the commentators keep talking over him. The kids at the sports bar wait expectantly for their milkshakes. That makes sense. Sarge continues dominating and hits a crossbody. I was not expecting that one at all. Yeah. Surprise there. Sarge tells the black curtains that he can't hear them chanting. That would be because curtains don't talk. Sure. That, 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 yeah, we, we, we all agree on that. <laughs> at the sports bar, the kids are excited because the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just showed up. The Terminator tells the curtains to shut up. 
Greg and Ralph talk about non-existent USA chants. If we're faking all this anyway, would it have been that hard to pipe in that chant instead of generic cheers? That's a fair point, yeah. Terminator wears Sarge down and tries a slam, but Sarge falls on top for two. Sarge counters some charges with a hip toss and a slam, and Ralph keeps saying that Terminator was slammed to the floor, which normally means outside the ring, not the mat. Yeah. True. After after watching this match for the first time and noticing that, I started noticing him doing it all across the show. It's really <laughs> annoying. Terminator ducks through the ropes for time. Back in, he uses an eye gouge to take over. The kids are not happy because Shredder just showed up. <laughs> Terminator beats Sarge up with choking and turnbuckle smashes, but Sarge reverses a whip and back body drops him, then hits a drop kick. Not Not a good one, but still. <laughs> yeah. He make Eric Watts proud. <laughs> Lunging clothesline by Sarge, and he nearly collapses too. Terminator reverses a whip, but Sarge dodges the charge, and Terminator eats turnbuckle. So Sarge hits a second rope clothesline, the slaughter cannon. The kids at the sports bar high-five as the turtles beat Shredder. That's a big surprise to them, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Sarge locks on the Cobra Clutch, and Terminator gives up during a replay of the slaughter cannon, giving Sarge the win. <laughs> Yeah, was, the the way that it finished played out was not great. It's 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 weird. He he puts the lock on. We cut to a replay, and by the time we're back from the replay, the referee is forcing Sarge to break because Terminator has already given up. Yes. So we actually miss the the actual win. <laughs> I would say only in WCW, but this is the AWA. Yes. So. O- only only in AWA and WCWA. It's <laughs> no, a condition at that. Sergeant Slaughter says something to the Terminator. But we still can't hear it because Ralph is too busy mechanically reciting a USA chant. <laughs> uh, thoughts on this one? I mean, first time I watched it, I was not very happy with it. Mm-hmm. On rewatch, it kind of grew on me. I'm not going to say it's yeah. a good match, but there are spots that surprise me, like Slaughter trying to do his crossbody, mm-hmm. which yeah. weirdly he actually was a little high on, which is kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. He like actually does too well at it, which yes. I would never have expected to be saying. Yes. Likewise, him trying to drop it, even if it's not great, especially late into the match, is actually kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, he he gets up there. Yeah, I think yeah. he just doesn't. Ex- he's not able to extend the legs far enough. Yeah. So his aim's a little off. Is more more than a, it's not that he can't do the drop kick. It's that oh no no he yeah. just gets the aim wrong. Yeah, I feel like if he had tried that a few minutes earlier in the match, he probably would have got it better. Absolutely. Yeah. Because a funny bit in the match where the other commentator talked about how they're all they must be all in great shape. Yes. You see, and I'm like, I don't know about that. Yeah. Sarge especially. Not that he's ever, like, you know, Triple H ripped or anything, but he's definitely not at his peak here. Yeah. Despite him saying he's the best shape he's ever ever been in. Which is a very odd brag. Mm-hmm. For sure. But yeah, the high point for me of the match was, at some point when they're circling each other, uh, Terminator shouts out that, G.I. Joe is bad. Cobra is number one. <laughs> I did not catch that at oh, all. Oh, you didn't catch that? It's so great. <laughs> no, yeah. that's great. It's a part of the, it's, I can't remember where it's that, but they're circling each other, and he, like, he's tuning to the crowd as if the crowd is there. But yeah, it's like, you can hear him say Cobra. Like, Cobra is number one. That's hilarious. That's why this, I think, this match won me over, because they just committed the idea that that's somehow in front of a crowd that is clearly not there. That That is brilliant. Yes. <laughs> but because in this match, and a bit in the previous match, we get enough of a wide shot that you can see where the walls are. Yes. And there's, there's no suspension. Uh, well, it's just, just further away. You know, there, there's a yeah. 
I, I was really I was watching for those kinds of shots because I didn't want to say incorrectly that there was no crowd. And it turns out yeah, at some point we find out that there was one. But in this match and the previous match, there are shots, especially during I think in the previous matches when De Beers is being run into the turnbuckle mm-hmm. in the slow motion replay, you can see they go a little bit too far yes. with the cameras and you can see the blue walls mm-hmm. yeah, where yeah. you're like, no, those in no way resemble the walls in the other place. Yes. <laughs> In one of the matches, too, you can see the camera rig they have hanging over the ring, like facing <laughs> the one side, the hard camera side, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny. But yeah, it's not a great match, but it's it's the right kind of match for the show for me. Mm-hmm. Perfectly decent TV match here. Terminator actually has a lot of character, and he made the most of this appearance, constantly yelling at Slaughter. Yeah. And Slaughter was game to engage in that, just mm-hmm. harder to hear. There's a few surprising moves from Slaughter. I never would have called the crossbody or the dropkick from a guy his size, and even the second rope clothesline was actually pretty cool. Yeah. The match was still pretty simple, and it didn't have much in the way of actual story, but both guys were making a clear effort and trying to help get each other over, so this ended up enjoyable enough. Yep. I feel compelled to note I'm grading on a bit of a curve tonight, as this is a TV show, not a pay-per-view. Sure. But still, this was decent fun. Yeah. That was kind of funny that... With a guy like the Terminator, you think you're going to push that he's the biggest, like, strongest guy you have. But they immediately point out that Sarge outweighs him um, in the buildup uh, about how he's, like, at way disadvantage against Slaughter. I'm like, that seems counterproductive. So it's, just, it's just weird that you don't quite get how wrestling logic works here. And of all places, the AWA. So, if Terminator looks familiar, there is a reason why. I will send you the picture now. Oh. Yes. The Terminator is Marcus Laurinaitis. Okay. The brother of John Laurinaitis. You see in the middle of that picture I sent you from uh-huh. New Japan, I believe, or All Japan, probably. And the also the brother of Over Animal. Cool. That is neat. That is also a very interesting picture. It is. Yeah, I there's two of them. That, I like that other one. They're, wave, they're waving at him. I think this is a better one. <laughs> Yeah, so Marcus Laurinaitis would join WCW in 1993 as part of a team called the Wrecking Crew, which is no relation to the Destruction Crew, <laughs> although that is a little confusing. It was him and Al Green, hmm. the former tag partner of Kevin Nash. Oh, okay. And when they were the Master Blasters. Right, right, right. Yes. And on at least one terrible show when the future will see Al Green in a different gimmick as well. He stuck around for a long time in wrestling. Also notable that before this point, when they worked the Florida NWA territory together, it was Marcus and John Lornias as a tag team. Oh. Obviously, the, uh, the other brother is busy, so I guess you get yes. to be with John. Not, not, to, not to extend like a second, you know, a silver medal, but I mean, obviously, the Road Warriors did pretty well on their own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no shame in saying that you, you came in behind the Road Warriors. Oh, no. In preference, not. yeah. And obviously, as far as Slaughter Slaughter ago, as I mentioned, he would leave before the end of this whole series even happened, thus missing on his chance to get that million-dollar check, <laughs> where he'd go to WBF and began his infamous run where he would turn heel on America and go against Hogan at WrestleMania 7. Yes. Not uh, fondly remembered. No. <laughs> the match that cost him the big 100,000-seat venue that they were supposedly going to book the show at. <laughs> Look, at least they didn't have to film it in front of a black curtains and fake the crowd's presence, though. So that's it true, still yeah. went up on the AWA. Absolutely, yes. 
<laughs> Sarge was probably still looking around like, wow, this is a big crowd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's actual people here. <laughs> As Sarge leaves the ring, Eric Bischoff comes down to talk to him. Congratulations, big win, despite the fact that Terminator Riggs appeared to want to write his own rule book for this match. I got into my eyes and uh, get into Slaughter's eyes, you better look out. All right. That match went a little longer than some of your previous matches. Were you in shape for this one? Are you in any better shape for these Team Challenge Series matches? Well, I'm in the greatest shape of my life. When I heard this guy didn't have an opponent, I made sure I put my name on there. Because I wanted to wrestle him. I know how good he is. I know he would have been a good match, and I wanted it. There you have the words. G.I. Joe himself, Sergeant Slaughter. He's the whole, the whole group? I, I guess so. Oh, okay. <sighs> kind of a nothing promo here. Yeah. Sarge just basically says he won, though I appreciate that he did take time to note that he took the match because he knew Terminator would be a good opponent. Yeah. It's one of those little build-up-the-other-guy moments that I always like. Yes, for sure. Still, there's nothing really established here, and it serves no real purpose. And was it just me, or was Eric Bischoff actually a little bit insulting? A little bit, yeah. It's like, were you in many better shape? Like, come on, dude. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that to his face. It's kind of a shame, too, that given they probably taped these in, like, no real sequence, because you could have had him address that he won where De Beer is lost. Right. Which would have been interesting. That would have made the story go forward. See, that would have been good, yeah. But, no. You didn't get any of that. Yeah, they, they don't really make use of the storyline that they were building between Sarge and De Beers once they're done with those initial promos. You really could have had something between the two of them to, you know, have him lecturing De Beers on, see, I showed you how it should be done. Yeah, they should have done as well, thinking back. I don't know, would have been hard with the way they shot everything. They should have had Sarge come out during the match. And you could have had, like, maybe his presence distracted him and installed him during the pile driver, and then it got reversed. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, you could blame Sarge for that, but you know, <laughs> writing too much quality content to this show. I'm not sure that they were even in the same building on the same day, so <laughs> that's the other issue. Yeah, you should have shot it that way. Whether they could have is the question as well. Yeah, we go back to Ralph and Greg, and Greg says that it's going to take him a week to recover from this show. Don't worry, Greg. You'll have time. <laughs> yes, you'll have years, in fact. Ralph builds up next week's show, which he says will feature more rock and roll, more Beverly Hills knockouts, and more wrestling. I'm up for two of those. He signs off for both, and Greg throws to footage of other stars that will show up next week, all from former AWA shows where they actually had a real honest-to-goodness audience. Aww. Among them, a dude in leather armor with crazy eyebrows, <laughs> a guy dressed as a state trooper, which I guess is probably the Patriot, Yes. two masked guys, and Kokina Maximus, more famously known as Yokozuna, mm -hmm. who looks really intimidating glaring at the camera. He does, yeah. I don't know about you, Al, but while this show was a little touch and go, I'm really excited to see next week's show. Absolutely. There would not be one. <laughs> Correct. The AWA logo flashes on the screen, and the show, and by extension this particular TV series, is over. <laughs> so overall thoughts on the AWA Team Challenge series pilot? Uh, there's definitely a lot of problems to work through. Mm -hmm. I mean, pilots are designed to be the starting point, and you go from there. Yes. Obviously, there are many famous shows that would go on for a long time that had very dubious pilots, Seinfeld being a famous one. Mm -hmm. Seinfeld was, in fact, originally called the Seinfeld Chronicle <laughs> on his pilot. Yeah, they took that part out. Wow. Yeah, it's, 
It's pretty bad. They can see they're trying. The goal is definitely to try and add flash, but maybe not substance to this. Maybe they thought they had enough substance. All they need is the the flash of WWF sort of style programming to get people to watch the show. Mm-hmm. And you know, once they watch it, they would hang around forever. So I guess I kind of see that logic there. And they definitely don't get into the insanity that I know they get into other Team Town stuff. So this isn't the worst show as far as that kind of silliness. Mm-hmm. The Team Town stuff, other than a over-the-top rope match, is played fairly straight. Yes. Although it's definitely confusion about when points were gained and when it actually started. Yeah. They really needed to do something where they showed the scoreboard before and after each match. Yeah. So you actually knew how many points were being gained, what these things were worth. Yeah, exactly. Like, is, is another top rope, king of the hill, whatever you want to call it, is that worth more points than a pinfall victory? Right, yeah. And just how wrong is Paul Diamond when he says this is the first match? Have there been tens of matches because they all have points in the teens? Or maybe we've had less than ten matches because each win is worth, like, five points or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's worth five points if you win the first round, but only four if you win the second round, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Plus, if it's a Tuesday or not. There's all these rules that set the points. <laughs> yes. The presentation they try to add to cover up the fact that in a studio is really sad. It's the best and worst part of the show for, yes. for watching it. be honest, if it hadn't played straight, we probably wouldn't be covering it. <laughs> probably not, no. No. We, I mean, we sure we'd watch it, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not a enough historical oddity if it's just, here's a weird AWA pilot show with normal wrestling on it and nothing, nothing stupid on it. So it makes it memorable, but it doesn't make it good. Right. That's sort of the key with that. Yeah, this is a fascinating show. Mm-hmm. Not a good show. No. But fascinating. Yeah. And we wanted to take a look at it in part because of the current situation in the entertainment industry, how so many companies have had to find new ways to host shows and get the feel of a live audience without actually having an audience present. That's what the AWA was trying to do in 1989, albeit for drastically different reasons. (laughs) Yeah. And there are some astonishing similarities. The video wall during the entrances, the shots of audience members in different places, it's not far off from what organizations have tried today, most notably the WWE Thunderdome. Yes. With its live video streamed fans. It's just that the AWA existed well before the technology to accomplish such a thing did, yeah. so they tried to fake it. And that didn't come off very well. No, it did not. The show as a whole isn't bad. No. It's a pretty average wrestling TV show with basic, unexceptional, but mostly acceptable matches, with the exception of the abomination that is the Beverly Hills Knockouts match. Yes. It's pretty much what you'd expect for that level of wrestling show. It shouldn't be compared to the pay-per-view level shows we've generally been covering, where companies are expected to bring their best, even if they often don't. Yeah. This is a TV show. The matches are there to build to something bigger, not to be the big thing. So I can't hold the simple matches against this show. They're doing their job. Really, there's little that stands out about the show as noteworthy in any way, except for the production which is absolutely ridiculous. Yes. yes it it's just so obviously fake. <laughs> yeah. From the video wall entrance ramps that feature the exact same footage mirrored on either side, and in fact repeatedly use the same sped-up video clip for the entire show, to the uncomfortable close-ups of people who are clearly in entirely different locations, either reacting as they're told to react or reacting to an entirely different show, 
to the attempts of some wrestlers to interact with apparently black curtains outside the ring in lieu of actual audience members, to the knockouts punching the camera that's supposed to represent their opponent, to the wonderfully hilarious promos that try to convince you that, say, the destruction crew are using their sledgehammers to knock down buildings roughly a mile away from them, the show's production is bonkers, and I love it for that. Yes. As you said, Al, this is a pilot, and I'm sure in part the ridiculous production is just that this was intended as a proof of concept. Yeah, sure. I hope at least that the AWA plan to replace the obviously faked audience shots, especially the repeated entrance ramp footage, with something that looked a little more legitimate, or at least varied, if the show actually got picked up. Yeah. I'm not I'm not sure how much better they could make it, though. No. This is 1989. The tech just isn't there yet to try something like this and have it work especially not on the budget the AWA likely had left by this point. Yeah, for sure. Add to the mix some pretty amateur screw-ups, like how the commentators just outright talk over the first half of the Destruction Crew's post-match promo yeah. before real- realizing midway that they ought to listen to what's being said and what could clearly be pre-recorded footage. <laughs> There's just no way something like that should happen. The camera crew at times matches some of WCW's worst work. Mm-hmm. Getting far too close on some shots, and at a terrible angle in others. The commentators spoil the final matches here the wrestlers gimmick by incessantly talking over the wrestlers. The audio from the arena bits varies between being far too loud in the case of the ring itself, and far too quiet in the case of the microphone poor Eric Bischoff is using for the promos. I know the AWA is trying a new show type here, but this often comes off as a wrestling company getting a TV show for the very first time. And the AWA had TV shows going back to 1960. (laughs) Yeah. This was not an inexperienced company, but it feels like one, which is not a good thing. Yeah. All told, this is actually a pretty fun watch. It is, yeah. If you're interested in either wrestling history or the absolutely ridiculous, or ideally both. (laughs) Yes. But it's not a good show. No. And it's easy to see why it was never picked up. I can't recommend it at all from a quality standpoint, but at the same time, I can easily recommend it as a curiosity. Watch and enjoy, except for the Beverly Hills knockout bit. Yeah. Skip that. (laughs) I will say, having read up on other stuff that would happen in the Team Challenge series that would go on on the regular shows, I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out if we ever find a way to circle back to that, though. Yes. It, w- it would be fun to, if we find an excuse, like a particular person involved or something like that, to see where some of those end up on their other TV shows. Yeah. And at the same time, I'm kind of curious to see if you ever find a chance to do one of the AWA's actual pay-per-views. Because there's, I think, four separate clashes, yeah, and they're on the network. Because, you know, where else are they going to be? <laughs> so what I'm mentioning at some point, if you get a chance, to sort of give them a chance to see what an actual pay-per-view they designed to be one actually looks like. Yeah. See if they get closer to what a WCW show or WF show would be. Absolutely, yeah. It, I, I certainly. I mean, I think this is something that we could uh, could revisit in the future. It won't be uh, this level of ridiculous, probably, because no, I don't I think, think they tried this stuff on any of their other shows. But um, it's interesting to look at this company. And I was not familiar with the AWA, and as much as I'm sure this is not the best first <laughs> <laughs> glance at it, it uh, no, no, it's it. It was neat to see. All right, it's time for our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, what's your match of the night? Okay, so it comes down to the four matches, because I'm not counting the knockout thing as previously established by now. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think, as far as being a total package, it's got to be the Slaughter-Terminator match. Okay. 
I don't think it's necessarily the best work match or the most creative match, especially comparing to other shows we've done. But like I said, they committed the gimmick. They're like constantly trash talking the crowd and mm-hmm. you can hear them like trying to trash talk each other and and there's some surprising content in there. And it's extra fun to finally see the Terminator to complete the Laurinaitis family tree. Yes. Especially given that we got to feature the two brothers in the last series. Yes, yes. I had two that I was considering. That was one of them, but I ended up going with the other. Okay. Um, and this, again, I, I do have to say, this is one of those nights where I had to remind myself it's match of the night. Yes. Not sure. match of the awesome. Uh-huh. But this was this was still all right. Um, so I went with Diamond versus De Beers, the King of the Hill match. Oh, okay. I think it's the match that has the best feel of an overall match story with some visible strategies. Though, as you pointed out, there's some flaws in that. Yeah, a bit. It benefits from having a very focused win condition that the two can work around. It's not a great match, but it has some fun spot ideas, and it's easy to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, MVP? So yeah, this is an interesting one for me to pick. I was thinking about, do I pick someone from that match? Honestly, I think I might go a lot side. I think I'm going to go with Greg Gagne. Okay. I actually thought, of the two commentators, he really tried, even when there's not a lot going on, try to make everything sound really serious and, like, legit and, like, impactful. Mm-hmm. He's trying to describe about, like, just basic form shots in the corner and, like, knock you out, all these things. Even if this whole thing is not the best idea, he's always committed to trying to make it sound like it's a good idea. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I found myself liking him quite a bit as the night went on. There's points where you can tell he's not happy yes. with with what's with what he's having to cover. <laughs> yes, but he's but he is at the same time trying to really give it his best and go out there. And he has a little bit of that, um, you know, ex wrestler commentator things where he can really yeah. comment on how this feels or such. He doesn't get to do enough of that tonight, but I think he he shows potential as a commentator. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I will actually say he was in my running as well. Okay, he was actually yeah. in my running as well. This was a tough choice for me. I didn't feel there were really standout performances tonight. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, I did also seriously consider picking Verngania's dog. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go with Sergeant Slaughter. Okay. They put a lot of the show on him tonight, and he does a decent enough job with it. He has one fun promo, two okay promos, <laughs> and a decent match that featured some good character work and some very surprising moves from him. Yeah. I may make fun of him trying to lead a non-existent audience in chance, but I lay more of the blame for that on the AWA. Slaughter just tries to make the best of the situation in kind of an awkward way. I'll give him credit for dedicating himself to the performance, at least. It's not always good, but he does seem to be consistently trying for the whole night. And to be fair, the worst thing with him on the show is the fact that they play two versions of the same promo. Yes. Which is not his fault that they played in that order. That is not his fault, no. And again, in both of those, he does his absolute best. And particularly in that first one, he seems to be really having a fun time with the Baron. So yes, I, I really appreciated that. I think that's on the rewatch. I think that's honestly what what took it over for me was just how much fun he seemed to be having there. What the show is really missing, unfortunately, is no Larry Zabisco. We are missing Larry Zabisco. Yeah. I would campaign for more Zabisco, definitely. <laughs> The Team Challenge series did not save the AWA. As you noted, Al, midway through the series, Sergeant Slaughter left the AWA and was replaced as head of his team by Colonel De Beers. Mm-hmm. The new TV show was not picked up, but it's worth noting that the AWA did have existing shows at the time. Correct. So it was just the new Team Challenge focus show that failed. 
The series continued regardless, until it would finally wrap up in August 1990 with Jake Milliman, a longtime AWA jobber, winning a battle royale by finally eliminating Colonel De Beers, winning the competition for Larry's Legends, and the AWA would hold its final TV taping on August 11th, 1990. Al, you said you had a list of some of the other Team Challenge matches that you wanted to bring in? Absolutely. So we've got the Beauty and the Beast match, which is a mixed tag with the male wrestler and female wrestler on each side. Okay. And De Beers is in it, so I guess that makes sense. We have a hand tied behind your back match, which is pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Each one has one of their hand tied behind their back for a whole match. There's a knockdown match, which is one when you knock the person down three times in one match. Okay. Also known as every match. <laughs> uh, at one point, they do a body slam match, which is originally presented as being Sergeant Slaughter against Coquina Maximus. Which would be intriguing. That could be, yeah. However, they actually have him fight Coquina Maximus's manager instead, which is less impressive to buy a guy like the same size as you. Yeah. Going back to the first Clash of the Champions, they have a Greco-Roman match. <laughs> this is the weirdest way to start a wrestling show. That was so strange. <laughs> In a match that WCW would actually use, they had a taped fist match. Okay. They had a weird one where it was a three-minute gauntlet match where... Each person would come out, and they'd fight, basically keep pinning jobbers until the three minutes ran out. Oh. And whoever got the most wins would win the whole thing. That actually sounds kind of fun. Yeah. It's a bit like a beat-the-clock match that WWE tends to do, where you got to beat someone in this time period, but it's like multiple. It's weird. It's like a beat-the-clock match and a Iron Man match, although it's also three minutes long. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. They also had a version of the Battle Royale called the Captain's Plus Battle Royale which had all three captains in it, plus one person. So each pick another team member to join them in a six-person oh, okay. battle royal. I get you. But it's called the Captain's Plus Battle Royal. All right. They also had a football match, which is as dumb as it sounds. <laughs> it's the AWE ring, presumably the tiny studio one they had, with a net in the top left and the bottom, or the, yeah, top left and bottom right corners, I guess, in each side, and then football and they'd fight each other and try to get the other one into that corner in the net. It's like you get your opponent, get the ball, and then run him into the corner, basically. So to be clear, this was American football? Yes. Okay. Because it sounds more like soccer, since there's a net involved. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. It does. Interesting. Towards the end, they just start having battle royals, because it's easier to do that. And you'll love this name, Bob. They had the Survival Series Battle Royal. <laughs> Swear to God, Survival Series. And this would then this would have been after, yeah, yeah the WWF had already started Survivor Series. Yes, correct. Oh, geez. It's a Battle Royal where you can also be pinned. Although apparently, from reading the recap, when they did it a couple times, only one person never got pinned. They'd always just get knocked out of the ring. Yeah. So only one guy actually jobs in a Survival Series match. Oh, geez. The final two matches they actually had for this, they had two of these in a row. They had the behind-the-eight-ball elimination match. Okay. Which was also a battle royal, but you could have pins in it. But the key was, it was the two teams that were at the bottom rankings fighting each other, and they would win, win and their team would get more points. Okay. So ultimately, the final one, that was the one you mentioned that Milliman won. He won the last of the behind-the-eight-ball elimination matches to get the most amount of points to win for Larry's Legends. Okay. And this is obviously before Larry left the company because they stopped paying him. 
If, yes, <laughs> just about to mention that. <laughs> yes, worth noting. The AWA held its final TV taping on August 11th, 1990. Soon afterwards, final AWA World Heavyweight Champion Larry Zabisco would leave for WCW, and Vern Gagne would strip him of his title. The AWA would finally close in 1991, and despite some attempts to reopen, would never succeed. It was the end of a company that had been around since 1960, yeah. and that had been instrumental in the rise of some of wrestling's greatest stars, and at least a temporary home to many more. Many of the performers that we've talked about in WCW shows were featured in the AWA for a time. Yeah. Hulk Hogan, The Road Warriors, Nikita Koloff, Tom Zenk, Larry Zbyszko, Kurt Hennig, Diamond Dallas Page, Wahoo McDaniel, Ricky Morton, Robert Gibson, Dennis Condry, Randy Rose, Stan Lane, Harley Race, Scott Hall, The Nasty Boys, mm-hmm. Tully Blanchard, Stan Hansen, Vader, Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, Ron Garvin, Dusty Rhodes, Jesse Ventura, Mean Gene Okerlund, and Bobby Heenan, just to name a few. Yeah. Not all owe the AWA their start, but an incredible number of famous performers counted as part of their career, and through them, it left its mark on wrestling history. That's true. And that wraps up our review of the AWA Team Challenge Series Pilot. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the shows as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next time, we'll start out our new series, Slamboree, beginning with Slamboree 93, A Legends Reunion. One moment, one ring, one mega event. Davy Boy Smith faces Vader. Nice. Barry Windham faces Arn Anderson. Sure. Sid Vicious versus Van Hammer. Uh, okay, not everything's going to be good. No. All that, plus more. Vern, Ganya. I hope he brought his dog with him. I hope so, too. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about... Whoops. I need. I forgot to rewrite that line. Okay. Share your own thoughts about whoops. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh.